welcome and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most heinous, the most high-profile homicides occurring in Maryland are examined, they are discussed, and they are profiled. For this season, season six, the focus is on robbery-related murders, or basically murders where the victim was killed simply because the killer or killers wanted something that the victim had. And like I said in the last episodes, trust and believe the state of Maryland has a lot of these types of homicides, and I only selected 10. 10 of the most horrific, horrific robbery-related cases, and this is only part one. Part two will come out later eventually, but for right now, season six, I only focused on 10 of the most horrific robbery-related homicides occurring in the state of Maryland. So with that being said, let's get right on into it and focus on this episode. Now on this episode, the murderer, Wesley Eugene Baker, will be profiled. And as in each episode and in every single season, there will be an unsolved homicide that needs special attention that will also be profiled. And for this episode, the unsolved shooting murder of 42-year-old Kimberly Heights will be examined. Now, suppose you were born into circumstances and a lifestyle so horrific, so bizarre, so traumatic, so dysfunctional, that it's basically inevitable that you're going to become a product of your environment. What if you were born into a life where you had no parental love, no natural affection, no guidance? Should that lack of a proper upbringing or lack of parental love be used as a precursor or catalyst for a lifestyle of delinquency or rebellion? What if that lifestyle turns you into a killer? Should you use the excuse of, you know, oh, I had a rough childhood, you know, should that excuse of, I had it bad growing up, you know, I had a, a bad parents and I had a rough childhood, should that be just your basics for defense? I mean, what if we all had bad or rough childhoods? What if we all had bad parents or basically no guidance or no discipline growing up? Are we all doomed to be psychotic killers based off of our bad childhoods? What if all of us suffered from some form of abuse, some form of childhood abuse? Does this automatically give you a uh, that, that person a pass to have a lifestyle that includes violence and murder or because, oh, I had a rough childhood? On this episode, I'm going to talk about the killer, Wesley Eugene Baker. Now, a lot of us have had it bad growing up especially if you grew up in the 80s or 90s in the middle of the crack cocaine epidemic where, uh, you know, back in the 80s and 90s when crack came out where a lot of parents unfortunately became a product of that environment. I mean, you throw in abuse and undiagnosed mental illness and sometimes the mixture, the whole mixture can be a recipe for disaster. According to Wikipedia, Wesley was born as the product of a rape. His mother, who was a teenager herself, 
she got raped she ended up getting pregnant and nine months later wesley was born so he was already unloved and not wanted young wesley who grew up in the waverly area of baltimore city was abused by his own mother both physically and sexually by the time he was five years old i've always wondered I understand how, you know, well, I can't say I understand, but I know what the physical abuse from a mother would entail. I understand that, you, you know, you're beating the crap out of your kids or whatever, but sexually abusing um, coming from your mother, I don't know anybody that can get over that. I mean, Wesley was also sexually and physically abused by his stepfather who beat him with belts and extension cords. And he was also sexually abused by two teenage girls before he was eight years old. So, a lot of illicit ancestral sex going on before he even realized, you know, anything about puberty or anything about his own body. And by the time Wesley was nine, he was pretty much left on his own and left to take care of himself. Wesley basically lived on the streets and learned how to survive on his own as a nine-year-old. This is in, in, in Baltimore. By the time he was 15, Wesley was already addicted to heroin and alcohol himself. What other path was he going to take? You know, and at 15, he became a father after he got a 28-year-old other heroin addict pregnant. 15, having sex with a 28-year-old. With Wesley's life spiraling out of control, when Wesley was 16 years old, he, you know, basically just started his lifestyle of delinquency. He stole a car, he got caught, he got sentenced to three years in prison, which was most likely a savior to him. People always think that prison is so bad. I mean, for a lot of inmates out on the street, that's like a savior. Where else are they going to do? You know, where else are they going to go? After Wesley got released from prison, he started committing armed robberies, and in 1978, he got convicted for armed robbery. This time, Wesley was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Wesley served nine years in prison before he was released back into society again in 1987. But by this time, Wesley was institutionalized, meaning he grew up in hell, then he got transferred to prison, and most likely, Wesley didn't or couldn't survive living on the outside with normal, regular people like us. So when Wesley got out of prison after serving those nine years for armed robbery, just two years after he got out, in 1989, Wesley was arrested again for drug and alcohol charges. Back and forth, back and forth, in the system, out of the system, in prison, out of prison, doomed to a lifestyle of failure, a lifestyle of disappointment, a lifestyle of despair over and over again. June 6, 1991, Wesley and his accomplice were out driving around looking for somebody to rob, and the pair ended up at the Westview Shopping Center parking lot in Catonsville. I mean, he had just got out of prison. That obviously... Prison does not deter repeat offenders. Like, they don't care about going back to jail. I mean, 49-year-old Jane Tyson, who was from the 6300 block of Redgate Circle in the Westview Park area of Catonsville, 
She was at the shopping center that day. Jane had been taking a break from caring for her parents and she had been out with her six-year-old grandson and her four-year-old granddaughter and they had been at the shopping center to get new shoes. After Jane was done shopping, Jane walked with her grandkids through her car that was parked in the shopping center's parking lot next to the Caldor's department store. Y'all remember Caldor's? Anyway, Jane's granddaughter climbed into the back seat of the car. Jane's grandson was about to get in the front passenger seat. Y'all remember when kids could ride in the front passenger seat? But anyway, Jane was about to get behind the wheel of her car when suddenly and out of nowhere, Wesley ran up to Jane, put a gun to her ear, and told her to give up her purse. No doubt, Jane was shocked beyond belief. She froze, but she screamed no when she saw the gun in Wesley's hand. Then, and with no warning whatsoever, Wesley pulled the trigger, taking Jane's life right in front of her grandkids. Snatching Jane's purse from her, Wesley ran back to his blue Chevy Blazer where his accomplice was waiting, and together they sped off. Witnesses to this shocking murder later testified that Jane's granddaughter ran to the front of the car and screamed, My mom shot. The mall was busy that day and this tragic event occurred in front of plenty of witnesses. While one woman ran over to Jane's screaming granddaughter, a man who lived behind the Westview Shopping Center and had been heading home saw Wesley's truck speeding away from the shopping center like a bat out of hell. The man started chasing the truck and managed to chase the blazer for several rocks. He also got the truck's license plate number. Then he drove back to the shopping center parking lot to go check on Jane, who had just been shot in the head. 911 had been called, and Jane was rushed to an area hospital where she was pronounced dead at 9.18 p.m. Jane, who had been a teacher's aide at Riverview Elementary School for 10 years, where she worked with second graders and taught them arts and crafts and was basically a mentor to the new teachers, she had been married for three ch she had been married with three children and had six grandchildren. Jane had been taking classes to become a Catholic and she had been very active in her church at the St. Lawrence Church in Woodlawn. Jane loved to dance and go shopping with her grandkids. Meanwhile, an all-points bulletin had been placed on the truck that Wesley was driving and Two Baltimore County police officers saw the truck and blocked it so Wesley couldn't pull off. Out of complete desperation, Wesley and his accomplice jumped out of the truck and took off on foot. Where they thought they were going to go, I have no idea, because they both were arrested. When Wesley was arrested, he still had Jane's blood on his pants, blood on his sock, and blood on his shoes. On the floor of the truck, on the passenger side was Jane's most uh, bank card and the gun that was used to kill her was found between the front seat. To make all of this evidence even worse, the police find Jane's purse and wallet on the same route that Wesley took when he was getting away from the shopping center. So basically they just threw it out the window. Arrested and charged with first degree murder, <laughs> Jane was killed for the $10 that 
that she had in her purse. With all of the evidence against him, Wesley and his accomplice decided to plead not guilty and take their case to court. Because of all of the heavily, heavy you know, publicity surrounding this case, the case was transferred from Baltimore County to Harford County, but it didn't matter where he took his case. I mean, come on now. Killed in front of your grandkids? On October 26, 1992, a Harford County Circuit Court jury convicted Wesley and his accomplice of first-degree murder, robbery with a deadly weapon, and use of a handgun in the commission of a felony. Four days later, that same Harford County jury sentenced Wesley to death for killing the beloved grandmother in front of her grandchildren. Wesley also got another 40 years tacked on for the robbery and handgun convictions. Wesley's accomplice was also convicted of the same charges, but because he wasn't the actual shooter, he was sentenced to life in prison plus an additional 33 years. And Wesley wasn't like the Gary Gilmores or the John Thanos who was ready to get their execution over with, who was ready to, you know, to die and all this other stuff. Wesley did not want to die, and he fought to save his life. He and his attorneys fought like crazy. I mean, they filed this appeal, they filed that appeal. Later, the Maryland Court of Appeals, they upheld Wesley's murder conviction and his death sentence, basically because they based their decision on doubts that they had on whether or not Wesley was the actual shooter. The judge actually wrote in her report, one must wonder how it was possible for Wesley to hold the gun to her head and leave his fingerprints on the car, especially in light of the fact that the incident only took a matter of moments and that the evidence Wesley was the shooter wasn't overwhelming. Man, it, it, it don't matter who did what. He got convicted again. He got sentenced to death again. Um, it didn't matter, like, he who shot who, who did what. He was convicted. Then in 2002, just days before Wesley was scheduled to be executed, the then-governor, Paris N. Glendening, he ordered a stay, or basically a moratorium on the execution, so that research could be done to see if the death penalty was racially biased in Maryland. So that bought Wesley a little bit more time. But the next year, in 2003, when a new governor, Governor Ehrlich, was elected into office, he lifted the moratorium, or stay on executions in Maryland, and he denied clemency to Wesley, and his death sentence was back on. On November the 28th, 2005, even the uh, William Cardinal Keeler, who was the Archbishop of Maryland, he actually visited Wesley in prison, which was the first time that uh, Cardinal Keeler had visited an inmate on death row. Like, after he spoke with Wesley in prison, the Cardinal, along with two other Catholic bishops, they all begged for, they begged to Governor Ehrlich to grant Wesley clemency and to commute his death sentence to a life in prison without the possibility for parole. They were fighting for him, begging for him to basically to save his life and to not execute him. But Governor Ehrlich refused. And on December the 5th, 2005, 
Wesley had a last meal of breaded fish, pasta marinara, green beans, uh, bread, orange fruit punch, ugh, and milk. He spent the last day, he spent uh, the last days of his life speaking to his family and friends that he had made on death row. Wesley's attorneys did comment to the press that Wesley did show remorse for killing Jane and that he had made his peace with God and on the last day of his life and at the Merlin Diagnostic and Classification Center, Wesley became the 58th person to be executed in Merlin since 2005 and Wesley had no last words. And since the death penalty was abolished in 2013, Wesley was also the last person to be put to death in Maryland so far. In April of 1994, a Baltimore County jury awarded Jane's family $2.75 million in damages after they filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the owners of Westview Mall, which stated that they were negligent in providing adequate and effective security to its customers at the Westview Shopping Center. Now, um, of course, Wesley Baker uh, and the murder of Jane Tyson, this crime was notorious in the state of Maryland because Wesley was, as I stated, he was one of the last persons to be executed in the state of Maryland before the death penalty was abolished in 2013. Um, there were some doubts about whether or not Wesley was the trigger man in this case because the other person, the other uh, accomplice that he uh, was arrested with, he ended up getting life. His accomplice was just like, look, I don't even know what's going on. Why would I try to rob somebody? I didn't know he was going to do this. I was just going for a ride. Whatever. He got life plus 33 years. Um, I remember when this happened. Uh, I had just came out of high school. I, I graduated in 1990. This happened in 91. I was trying to pursue a career of law enforcement a little bit. I don't know, security guard, something that has to do with law enforcement. And I remember thinking, like, when this happened at Westview, uh, back in the day, Westview was like a quiet mall. It was not as, like, populated like it is now. It wasn't, uh... If I can remember correctly, I think Westview actually was an indoor mall. And they just made it into, like, a shopping center. But um, back in the day, I remember when this happened, um, I remember thinking, wow, out there? Out Catonsville? Somebody got shot out that way? Um, and it was it was a shocking crime at the time. Because, you know, this happened in front of her two grandkids, who will most likely be traumatized for the rest of their lives because of what they had to see. It, you know, this is the reason why, one of the reasons why it was so notorious because something like this just did not happen back in that area. I mean, now Westview has changed, but, you know, back in the day, Westview was just one of those quiet malls. They used to have like a, uh, what was it, a $2 movie theater up there? <laughs> you know, Wesley tried to use the excuse of, Oh, I've had a bad childhood. You know, a lot of us had bad childhoods. A lot of us been abused. A lot of us was unloved and stuff like that. Does that turn us into psychotic killers? You know, it always kills me when 
defense attorneys try to use that as a defense strategy, thinking that someone is supposed to have sympathy um, because they chose a lifestyle of delinquency because they were abused or they had it rough growing up. It's almost like, are you allowed a free pass because you had a bad childhood? You know, if you a fuck up, you a fuck up. Don't blame nobody else, including your parents. At some point, you grow up and you do realize that my actions or what I'm doing is going to lead me down a path that maybe I should not go. That's not your parents' fault. That's your fault. Jeez, I mean, you you just hear that shit a lot and it just be like a broken record. Like, come on now. Um, This case also brings into question Maryland's death penalty that was abolished in 2013. I believe, and I'm a firm believer in the death penalty. You know, a lot of people are against it, you know. No, I believe if you kill someone, you know, certain cir- certain certain circumstances, you know, will come into play and, you know, give you a different outcome. But for the most part, certain death penalty cases, you know, I believe that there should, I mean, certain crimes, there should be a death penalty option on the table. Come on now. Um, would that be a deterrent for uh, criminals to stop committing crimes? Maybe if y'all put it back on the table, we'll, we'll find out. And, uh, and another thing too, when a person is sentenced to death, use that same energy that you had when you executed, you know, Timothy McVeigh, when you executed John Muhammad. They wasn't on death row for years and years and years. I think Richard Ramirez was sentenced to death. You know how long he stayed on death row in California? Really? If you're if a person receives a death sentence, carry it out within ten years at least. Or within five years at least. I mean, come on. Appeal after appeal after appeal after appeal. I mean, come on. You know, I see they didn't go through all that process when they fried John Muhammad. <laughs> I mean, they didn't Virginia didn't play. Same thing with Timothy McVeigh. They didn't play no games. It was like they wanted these people dead. I mean, there wasn't a whole bunch of appeals back and forth and, you know, court visits and stuff like that. If some per- if a person is sentenced to death, execute them. Do what you, do what you got to do. Just don't drag it out. Imagine how, how traumatic that is for the parents. I mean, uh, for the victim's family to keep reliving these events over and over and over again. That's why, you know, uh, and I'm agreeing for the death penalty. I'm just not agreeing with the process that comes along with it. Um, I just believe that the last ex- the last execution that we had in the state of Maryland, like I uh, was um, Wesley Baker. I believe they should bring the death penalty back. Um, this is this case right here. Uh, you know, executing a grandmother in daylight in front of her grandkids. Yeah, um, this is always going to be one of Maryland's most notorious murders, simply from the callous nature of it, and also simply from the fact that he was executed. And now we're going to move right on into this week's unsolved homicide. But before I do, before I go there, let me just say... Let me just mention again that this is not just a podcast that focuses on the most heinous, high-profile homicides occurring in Maryland. On this podcast, a portion will always be dedicated to the victims, 
where nobody knows what happened, where nobody knows, or should I say, where nobody is talking about what happened, nobody is saying what happened, where a victim was literally here one minute and gone the next minute. You'd be surprised at the number of people who are killed and friends or family of the victim. They might have a feeling that they know who killed their loved one, but because they can't prove it or they don't have the actual evidence, they don't know how to go about getting answers. They don't know how to go about getting justice for the victim. And they are still left with tons of unanswered questions. They're left with like tons of unbelievable grief crippling grief and it's like the victim just died all over again the not knowing is what kills a lot of people it's hard to just move on with your life like that when you have so many unanswered questions so many what ifs you're expected to just move on with your life pick up where you left off swallow your traumatic event hope that the detectives will do their jobs and then hope that the justice system will deliver you like some sort of justice that can come close to the feeling that you experience when you lose a loved one to homicide. Getting justice in the state of Maryland, that don't happen a lot. And to be blunt, the detectives are kept busy with homicide cases that already have clues, cases that already have witnesses, cases that you know, who already has people that aren't scared to come to court. They already have evidence. But what about the homicide cases that don't have clues? These cases are eventually labeled as cold cases and put on a back burner, so to speak. And to be honest, not a lot really happens until evidence basically falls out of the sky or somebody open up their mouth and start talking. Well, on this podcast, Every single unsolved homicide needs special attention, in my opinion. I mean, it, it don't matter what the victim did or didn't do. It don't matter what the victim's lifestyle was like. It don't matter what they did or didn't do in their personal life. Who in the hell are we to judge somebody when we ain't perfect our damn self? I mean, that way of thinking or trying to justify why a person was killed, like, it, it gets me every single time. Who are we to decide who lives and who dies? Oh, this person got killed because they was out there tricking. Or this person got killed because they was out here selling drugs. Oh, he got shot because so-and-so shouldn't have been getting high in the first place. Like, do you hear yourself? Like, really? Last time I checked, ain't none of y'all named God. No one is perfect. And we all make mistakes. So it's no justification for homicide. So with all that being said, the focus for season six unsolved homicide cases has been all women. All women who have lost their life to homicides, you know, will be the focus for this season. And this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 42-year-old Kimberly Height. Memorial Day weekend in the year of 2020. Nine people were killed in Baltimore City on that weekend alone. Let that sink in, y'all. Nine people got shot Saturday and Sunday. And on Sunday, May 24th, 2020, 42-year-old Kimberly Height was one of those nine people that were shot and killed 
And she was just one of four women that were killed that month. Shot at the corner of Rutland Avenue and East Lafayette Street in the Broadway East area of Baltimore City, Kimberly was the mother of two children and was from the 1700 block of East Lafayette Avenue. Shortly after Kimberly was killed, a crowd of at least 70 of Kimberly's friends and family got together at Collington Square Park in Broadway East to remember her and to honor her. Kimberly's son gave a comment to the press that read, Remember my mother as a queen, the strongest woman that I have ever met in my life. That's all we got. I mean, no other clues. As of today, there has not been an arrest in this case. There has not been uh, a conviction in this homicide. In this particular case, there was another person that got shot. So this was basically a double shooting. Y'all know what time it is. If you have any information that can lead to an arrest and or conviction in this unsolved homicide, please, please call Homicide Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also give them a call at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also send them a text message at 443-402-4824. You can send them an email at homicidetips at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous, people. Once again, those numbers are Homicide Cold Case Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also give them a call at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also send them a text message at 443-402-4824. You can also email them at homicidetips with an S at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous, people. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. Also, for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the unedited truth of why I do what I do, why I got into true crime, why I started writing all true crime books and the podcast and everything in between. A lot of people think I just woke up one day out of the blue and was just like, boom, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a podcast. But nope, that is not even me. That ain't even hardly true. And that's not the process or like how it went down. There is a full-blown method to all of this madness. And this wasn't just some overnight gimmick. Also, be sure to check out um, a visit to the new website, MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com. And Merlin is spelled MDS, where you can access ep- you can access episodes from past seasons one through five. You can also find links to all of the true crime books that are related to this podcast, entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, nineteen ninety to two thousand eight, uh, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume One, um, and my local bestsellers, Until I Get Caught, A True Baltimore Story. 
You can also check out the books that are not necessarily crime related, but are my local bestsellers, which are Child of Baltimore and uh, Junkie H.P. Baltimore Story. Be sure to tune in next week where another, another gruesome high profile homicide occurring in Maryland will be examined, it will be profiled, and it will be discussed on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a Savage Life production.